Hey, thanks for listening to Everyday Greatness. It's a nice little show brought to you by our major sponsor, ARA Group, an employee-owned company that provides essential services for your facility and infrastructure and is one of Australia's biggest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness isn't rocket science. We're just trying to make you feel proud again of simply being a good, solid human being by speaking to some real people who found that the strength they needed to deal with any challenge in their life had been inside them the whole time. The ARA Group is proud to stand alongside Everyday Greatness, and we all hope that you enjoy the show. However you define the word success, our guest today, CEO of the Antarctic Science Foundation, Andrew J. Kelly, is an incredibly successful human being. Andrew's success has come from the accumulation of all of the small goodness he's received from, and more importantly, given back to the world over his entire life. And one of the bits of small goodness he received from the world was from his coach when he was a competitive cyclist. His coach told him the secret to success was to just turn up. Just turn up. Simple. There will always be reasons not to turn up, not to try your hardest, and most people will take the easy road and not show up. But the small goodness Andrew gives to the world is based on just turning up. He turns up for his family, his friends, his colleagues, and his local community. Not to solve the problems of the world or turn people's lives around with profound words of wisdom. It's just to try and put a smile on people's faces to be a reliable, friendly face in an uncertain world. Andrew doesn't add small goodness as a tactic to get himself ahead. He adds it to try and make society a better place to live in. And if that helps him, that's just a bonus. This man is a human gem, rare and valuable. And it's truly an absolute pleasure to welcome one of the great human beings, Andrew J. Kelly. Hey, welcome, Andrew J. Kelly. It's Scott here. G'day, Scott. How are you? Oh, mate, I'm just... Terrific. Oh, terrific and, and chuffed that you've given us the time to talk with you. So, Andrew, as well as being the big cheese or the grand fromage at the Antarctic Science Foundation, you've got an impressive resume. Can you take us through some of the other roles you've served? Thanks, Scott. Uh, I started my adult life as, a, as an economist at university, uh, so I, I say that I, I'm eminently qualified to tell you exactly how the world doesn't work <laughs> by doing that, that study. And then I went into banking for 10 years, which was a really good education for a young man uh, working in the corporate world. Uh, but after after about a decade and a bit of life experience, I decided that I, I wanted to do something a little bit different and, and, and focus on more of a, a societal or social return than uh, than a corporate return. And so for the last 20 years, I've been involved predominantly in philanthropy. And that has led me to be uh, working for organizations like the Smith Family, uh, St. Vincent de Paul, Human Rights Law Center, uh, Medical Research, and, and now at the Antarctic Science Foundation, where I've been able to make a small contribution to uh, the, the lives of, of kids at risk, uh, women in, in DV shelters, uh, drug and alcohol rehab, education, medical research, asylum seekers, and now again in science with uh, the work that the Antarctic Science Foundation does. 
Just phenomenal. Now, I met you at the CMRI when I was doing the auction for for Jeans for Jeans. Yeah, our, and, our, our denim dinner. Yeah, and then you were terrific. You you invited me to see ProCan, the, the CMRI cancer research. To, and, and can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because that's world beating. It's not just world class. You're beating the world and, and doing something great, not just for Australia but for the world, but you're doing it from Australia. And you were chiefly involved in fundraising with that. The ProCan project at CMRI is outstanding. It is the the world's largest database of, of, of cancer samples. And what the researchers are doing there is taking those samples and scanning them at the at the molecular level, if you like, to find the commonalities uh, and pair those particular cancers against treatments that have been shown to be effective, which would mean that uh, rather than a, a, a trial and error approach to treating cancer, which, which we've seen in the past, uh, the, that database will produce uh, an outcome from a scan that would mean that the patient could be given the most effective treatment from the get-go, uh, which would significantly change the way cancer is treated, not only here in Australia, but around the world. Yeah, my memory was something like five million samples you were getting to to make things happen. A, a big co- cooperative effort with researchers and institutions around the world giving cancer lines uh, samples to CMRI so that they could do this work and, and really underlines the innovation that Australians tended tend to do and, and, and be involved in without without trumpeting it. Yeah. Uh, so it's an amazing project being done in the western suburbs of Sydney at Westmead yeah. in a in a nondescript building uh, where, you know, every Australian and, and, and certainly the people in the, the neighbourhood around uh, CMRI at Western Sydney should feel very proud of, of the work that's being done there. Absolutely. And just for everyone, CMRI is Children's Medical Research Institute but and that is a world beater. And I've got to say, of all the things I've done, your tour of taking me through that was just one of the most exciting and generous things. You, you, you were just incredibly generous with your time. So you've said that your success comes largely from being in the service of others. How does that work really when, like, how do you get ahead personally when you're always trying to help other people? I suppose, Scott, I'm not really all that focused on getting ahead. I, I myself personally, I'm, I'm more interested in the outcomes that we can get together as a team or as as a as a pair and so taking you to see procan and and taking the time to show you around procan uh, was really more about what i could do for you in that case so you could see work that is otherwise pretty much behind closed doors more generally the work that i do is that which we hope will have a societal impact and by showing people and demonstrating to people that there are institutions and and very good uh, dedicated staff that work in these areas, uh, they can see that the problems that we face as a society are actually being given quite a close level of inspection by very talented people and it, it heartens them to know that. And it also brings them closer to 
supporting projects like ProCam or the Antarctic Science Foundation or any one of those areas that I've worked in. So I find it's great privilege to be able to show people uh, this work that's being done. Quite often we're, we're happy to find and point to the problems that we face in society, but we're, we're quite often less likely to be shown that there are solutions and people uh, working away to, to try and solve them. So getting ahead personally is, is really uh, a, a side factor to the great privilege that this work allows me uh, in showing other people um, what is being done in, in, in our society to solve some of these problems and you know, it's eminently worthy work. Yeah, yeah. For not, uh, the generosity when you showed me through of your time was magnificent, it was just wonderful. So I, I know that you credit good role models in your life for getting you where you are today, but can you mention one or two of those role models and, and what they've actually taught you? Well, you've touched on, on my coach, uh, Robert, who was a tremendous influence in my life at a stage when I was a, a teenager, a, a young adult, and his his wisdom would just keep turning up to training, turn up to the race, turn up in the race, uh, turn up when things are difficult. That that was that resonates with me now, more than thirty years after after he said that to me. But for role role models, I. I I really have to get much closer to home. I'm, I'm part of a big family. Uh, I've got seven brothers. Uh, and my mum and my dad uh, were tremendous examples. Uh, looking back now as a father myself, to see the effort that they put into um, raising uh, eight boys and just the consistency of effort um, the consistency of rulings in disputes. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> you look back and you just, you just see that they were superhuman. I've got I've got one child uh, to see that they uh, they they raised a, 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 such a group of young men, mm-hmm. and and then also my brothers. My brothers are great influences on on me. We're all very different, uh, but that was a good grounding, a good proving ground for uh, growing up with different people and, and, and getting along with different personalities and different needs. So just seeing my dad go to work every day, um, you know, being professional uh, in, in that realm, seeing the efforts of my mum and the way they, as I say, uh, ruled on disputes and, and also imparted their wisdom. Yeah, and they they are the the greatest influence, and I'm obviously very grateful for for all of their efforts and and the way they they brought us up. That's a pair of superstar parents to raise eight boys. How did they solve when when the boys wanted to get involved with a bit of mix it up? How did they solve for that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, there was a great level of respect in in the family. Uh, and we also recognize that each of us have an opinion and, and, but you had to, had to argue it out as well. I mean, arguments and discussions at the dinner table were, uh, were legion. They, they were fantastic, but it, it really set us up for, uh, discussions and, and debates 
with with the outside world, and, uh, and that was a that was a great help. For yeah, me. <laughs> uh, cricket cricket in the backyard uh, that was as competitive and <laughs> and, and as interesting. Where you've got a a, a range of ages. Where were you? Uh, where were you in the in the pack? Yeah, I was I was the difficult third child, so I, there was a bit of a gap between uh, my two older brothers and, and myself, and then uh, so there was a spread. But the really interesting uh, rite of passage was the playing cricket with the hard ball. So anyone can play it with a tennis ball, but you know the older boys would say, "Well." We're playing cricket with the hard ball. If you get hit, you don't go to mum crying, you know, that you've got hurt because that's all part of the game. So that was another rite of passage in, in our family, which was when you play cricket with the hard ball, you don't complain about, you know, the outcomes. And, and that was, that was a great, um, again, proving ground and, uh, a, yeah. a lovely way to, to engage with, um, with the realities of life that quite often in life you are playing with the hard ball yeah. and you've got to take some of the decisions and, and the scrapes. Gee, that's good. That's good. Andrew, you left a, a promising career in baking and you went down a path of helping third sector organisations to contribute to the idea of a good society. So do you feel that you've helped make society better by shifting your focus from personal success, if you like, to societal success? I think that's for other people to judge, Scott, but it's certainly very satisfying work to do. And and it's also work that I I felt that that's where I needed to go. We're all we're all called or or pulled towards that which we feel that will we will satisfy our our needs and our our, our desires and and our um desire to, to achieve or, or to be seen in a certain way maybe, but I, I felt that that was the way to go and, and that I would be best used or, or, or employed in, in, in the field that I'm in. And as I say, it's a great privilege to be able to do this work because I get to see, I get to see work that's, that's being done to, to solve problems or push on and then to talk to people who are very keen to engage in that because they they themselves are entrepreneurial. They've they've done well in a particular domain, and then philanthropically they would like to give back to society themselves as well. But they'd like to do that in a in an entrepreneurial, uh, catalytic way. They they want to want to apply some of the principles that they used when they were making money and and creating influence, and then apply that to to some of the societal problems that we've yet to solve. And, and that being between those two worlds and bringing them together is, is really the work that I've been engaged in. And it's, as I say, it's a, it's a great privilege and it, it's, it's an enormously satisfying every day yeah. to be talking to, to researchers that are pushing forward uh, and, and creating a better world for us. And, and then philanthropists and big and small who, who are, are very keen and interested in their world and they and they want to make a difference as well. I think that's the the joy of knowing you is that you have that talent of marrying, if you will, the the entrepreneur, the philanthropist, with the the joy for them of seeing that the dollars that they can contribute 
are actually going to make a difference. And and you you show them that. You don't just sell it to them. You actually show them the benefits. It's a beautiful thing to watch. So thank you for that. Uh, and thank you for, for observing, Scott. It's it's a little bit like being a matchmaker, uh, bringing together a, a, a woman who I'd uh, been introduced to and got a really great relationship with uh, who supports one of our researchers in Tasmania. Uh, she's in Victoria and she's so interested in the work that he does and every year they get together and have a sandwich and talk about the work he's doing on ice shelves. She's fascinated in his work and he is so surprised that uh, that she is so interested that there's somebody out there that is interested in the work that he would say is really esoteric, Andrew, and pretty boring. But no, she she's there uh, every year for a sandwich and a coffee to hear about the work that he's done over the last 12 months. And I, I think we all need a supporter like that. We're, wherever we we are, whatever work we do, yeah. it's, it's enormous to have a supporter like that. And that's what the foundation, uh, CMRI, uh, the, the other organizations that I've worked for, Vinnie's and Smith Family, that's what they do. They bring together those people so that they can have that type of relationship oh, of, of mutual support. They bring, but you bring. That's that's your talent. So when you left banking, and I think I know the answer to this, was individual success still a goal at the back of your mind or, or was it that you completely just dropped chasing that individual success to only think about the people around you? I think I redefined what success meant to me and and walked into an area where that I didn't really have any experience in, but I had a sense that I may be successful in in that area. And and so my first role with Chris Riley off the streets, I remember um, Father Chris saying to me, so what do you know about charities or fundraising? I said, well, probably not much more than anybody else, but I've got some relationship skills and I've got a reasonably good book of contacts that I think would be very interested in the work that you're doing. And and that was the role that I started uh, this journey on. And, and it's been a journey. So uh, I think it's more of a redefinition of what success is uh, that, that led me to, to take that, that different path. Yeah. I reckon as an auctioneer, I could auction off your book of contacts for a tiny sum. (laughs) (laughs) I reckon every charity in the world will want it. Oh, you're so good. Hey, thank you, Andrew J. Kelly. I'm going to pass you over to Barnaby Health now. You ready? Yeah, terrific. It's Barnaby Health. Good on you, Andrew J. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. If your generosity to everyday greatness were a strawberry, we'd all be eating a lot of smoothies right now. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Barnaby. It's great to be great to be on the show with you. Thank you very much. So let me ask you about your trip to Antarctica. You're one of the lucky people in the world to have flown to Antarctica. What were your first impressions when you flew over the icy shelf? Antarctica is this bottomless paradox. It it, it takes your breath away when you first see it. Uh, you when you approach from the air. Uh, you notice that there's invariably sea ice, which are small icebergs, which become bigger. Uh, at the time of year that I went down, uh, they're, they're breaking off very naturally from, from the, the ice shelf and the coast. 
And then you start to see the coastline of Antarctica and, and every expectation that you, you carry with you just gets blown away. Uh, the idea that it'll just be one big blob of ice and it'll just be as white as far as you can see, uh, is completely different. It's, it is, it is white for sure and it is ice for sure, but it is every different tone and shade of ice, uh, texture, shape. Uh, it is what it is the most mountainous continent in the world. So, Flying over it, you see these enormous mountains that have been ripped uh, into place by glaciers, uh, which slow-moving ice that moves, say, 200 metres a year, but moves with great force. And and to see the textures, to see the contours of Antarctica from the air, uh, is it just takes your breath away. And, and that trip, Barnaby, took me a few weeks to assimilate what I'd actually seen. Uh, to fly uh, three hours down, three four hours down from from Australia to Antarctica, it's not a long flight, but you're in a in a region that is simply um, extraordinary and like nothing else that I've ever seen. So, quite often we describe Antarctica as as our nearest planet, and and that is entirely true. It is just completely different. To anything that you may have seen or experienced before, and as I say, it, it took me a little while to assimilate and and reflect upon what I what I'd experienced from that first trip. Wow, Antarctica was already on a lot of people's bucket lists, but I think you just added to a few more. Did you see any wildlife, uh, penguins, seals while you were there? And what was that like? It's it's pretty hard to see uh, wildlife from from uh, from flying in from a height so what we did see however was a was a penguin rookery and uh so penguins have uh have black feathers uh the ice is white and when penguins and white ice get together it goes gray uh both with um with their food and 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 the 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 feathers that they that they molt so you can see rookeries from the air but but seeing individual uh, whales or seals or penguins is, is very difficult. does sound like it. Now, Antarctica sounds like a place where there's a lot of close quarters living. How difficult has the last couple of years been for the Antarctic Science Foundation while coronavirus has been rife around the world? Yeah, the virus has been a, a real handbrake to the Australian Antarctic Program and and also national programs uh, that are based in Antarctica. So the imperative at the very beginning of 2020 was to keep coronavirus out of Antarctica, remembering that we didn't know much about it uh, from the get-go. The the fear that we would have to, programs would have to intubate and uh, ventilate uh, sufferers meant that there was a very great risk uh, in Antarctica, because the, the national programs simply do not have that type of uh, intensive care uh, triage capacity at all. So there was uh, very strict quarantine uh, measures put in place in the Australian program, which meant that expeditioners had to uh, quarantine for up to three weeks before getting on a boat or a, or a jet to go down to 
to the Australian bases in Antarctica. That's also meant that there's been uh, less research done uh, on on the continent because we simply have not been able to put people down there. What we're now seeing is that the the Australian Antarctic program, but also programs uh, around the world that that go to Antarctica during the research season, are starting to uh, get to grips with with COVID. Certainly with the vaccines and and shorter quarantine periods, so that uh, the the usual group of uh, or cohort numbers of researchers can get back to Antarctica. But the last two years have been have been very very tight. As if Antarctica wasn't tough enough already. The researchers your foundation support must be incredibly resilient people. Where do you think they find their combined strength from? Well, I think many of them would be great guests on your show, Barnaby, because, again, it's it's the everyday efforts that these tenacious and remarkably intelligent people make which sing, signals them out as uh, extraordinary. So these are researchers who will do work in environmental science uh as any scientist might at a at an Australian or international university, but their focus is on Antarctica, and and so the opportunity to go to Antarctica to get ship time to get a berth on a ship or on a on a plane down there is pretty rare. So they've got to put forward the type of work that would be catalytic and additional to that which we already know. And then they get their opportunity to go to Antarctica. And and for many, they have to first deal with what I was describing before, which is the enormous beauty, but also treacherous nature of the place. It it, it is both sides of, of, of a particular coin. And then they've got to do this work in, in that environment where uh, Antarctica is the coldest continent on, on Earth. It's also the windiest. And there's a very slight window of time each year when you can do this work. So uh, the research season starts in October, November of each year, and then, uh, which is the summer, and it, it winds up by March of the following year. So it's much like a farm. You, you've got to get in, do the work, and get out. And, and every day uh, presents risk to life and limb while, while you're doing this work, whether it be on ice shelf mapping or, or looking at uh, the, the, the clouds, the effects of climate change, the ozone, uh, the hole in the ozone, which famously was was over uh, Antarctica. Uh, you know, in the, we discovered that in the early eighties. Get in and do that work as a researcher, and then and then get out. So they, these are people who are very tenacious. Uh, they've got to deal with isolation as a, a as a as a part of the job. As a community, global community, we've all had a taste of isolation over the last 12, 24 months, but. Uh, when you go to Antarctica, you're away from family and friends for extended periods of time. So you've got to be pretty pretty strong in the mind as well to do this type of work. Such a cool insight to a place that so many people would love to go but never get the opportunity. The Antarctic Science Foundation, though, is helping people witness the magic of flying to Antarctica firsthand with the help of Antarctica flights. Tell us what that partnership involves and how people can fly to Antarctica and experience the magic themselves. Uh, you're right, and uh, Barnaby. Antarctica Flights is is a charter company in the Captain's Choice stable, and and the foundation is is working in partnership 
with Antarctica flights who take about 10 trips down to Antarctica each year uh, from capital cities around around the country. And this gives people an opportunity to do an overflight of Antarctica. You don't land uh, in Antarctica, but it's a it's a 15-hour flight from most of those capital cities down to Antarctica, and then you do a, a three to four-hour overflight of uh, those areas which are which are clear on the day. So weather changes really quickly in Antarctica. So they they map out a a, a really good route for the day to ensure that you don't have cloud, you don't have too much wind, and you can get a really good look at, at glaciers and ice shelves and bergs. Uh, and the coastline and, and, and the inland as well. The opportunity to partner with Antarctica Flights is fantastic for the foundation because we're able to take researchers that can explain to uh, the, the guests on board what they're seeing and, and what, what is happening in our world through um, climate disruption uh, and, and how that is manifest in Antarctica. So whilst it's a uh, a tourism experience for for all. It's also be a, a quite an educational experience because it's it's seeing something as I've said before that that you have a sense of, uh, and many of the guests do expect that they'll just see a lot of white ice, and they they're quite surprised at the the variation and the texture of Antarctica and how diverse it is, and and how quickly you know three or four hours um, scoots by while you're looking at. This extraordinary landscape um, down south. Well, Andrew J. Kelly, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you as a human being. Now let me pass you back to the real Grand Fromage, Scott Gibbons. <laughs> Andrew, that's just terrific. I love the fact that you said that that your researchers go down there from October to March. That's one hell of a way to get a white Christmas, isn't it? Oh, it sure is, and that's where the, the bulk of them uh, go down. There, there are researchers or expeditioners that overwinter, as they say. And so today, uh, in, in the middle of in the middle of our winter, there are a, a hardy group of people down there that are keeping the lights on and the and the fuel running, uh, so that when the expeditioners and the researchers particularly arrive later this year. The, the three Australian stations will be in working order. Uh, so it's not just researchers. It's it's uh, very, very tenacious uh, plumbers and carpenters, chefs and support staff that, that keep those stations operating. Wow. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. So whichever angle you look at your life, Andrew, from, from being a successful human being, you're, you are a, a terrific man. You're a good man. You've got a good job. Great job, if you would. Terrific family. And you give back to society, which is one of those beautiful things that a lot of people are yet to learn, but you really do. You give back to society. So what's the, the proudest thing that you can say about you? Oh, Scott, I, I think when it all gets down to it, I'm, if it's success, then the, the only success that I'm really interested in is being a dad and and being for you know my daughter the the best dad that I can possibly be I I, I saw a movie recently uh, about a, a teacher uh, in in Bhutan uh, that that had to go up to this 
this village up in the mountains and and do national service as a teacher for a year. And he was revered by the villagers that came to collect him. And then every villager that spoke to him on the way, uh, you know, pointed out, this is the teacher, this is the teacher. And he, and he was like just a, a young man who, who knew a bit of language and he didn't consider himself a teacher at all. And he said, well, why is the, What's the, what's this thing about being a teacher? I'm, I'm, I'm hardly a teacher at all. What's so important about being a teacher? And, and the villagers said, "You're a teacher. You touch the future." Wow, wow. And and that's that resonates with me as a dad because as as a parent, the the best I can do is to touch the future through the preparation of of my my daughter and and if i'm successful at that then the rest of it is is sort of by and by and we all know that we we create families and and, and friends and, and circles of, of people around us yeah. if we can have that influence on them then the job that we do just enables that the the work that we do through the day really just enables those relationships and and being able to touch the future through your work and certainly through your family and your friends, uh, is is what has pushed us forward over obviously millennia, and and we must continue. Yeah, but your love of family is so strong. You and I have never spoken where you haven't spoken of your daughter. That's just that's fact. It's really? Just, oh, okay. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I wait for it. I wait for it because I know that she's there. It's just it's a beautiful thing. So can people become successful just by being good people, do you reckon, or or trying to give back to the world these days when things are so ruthlessly competitive? Can they still be successful just by being a good person? For everybody, it's going to be different. Uh, that, that's what I've learned in, in my short life, that it's different for each of us and we find that where we are comfortable and and where we can suppose reconcile our values and and our aspirations and so i'm like each of us we're we're all solving the problem of life and we're we're making decisions along the way which uh are always intended to make us happy so none of us make decisions that are intentionally uh trying to steer us off into the into the long grass so i i suppose my view is that if if I work with other people and and help them achieve that which they're keen to do, then then I've done my part in my in my job uh, and in my role. And if that has a, a societal benefit, I hope it does, and I certainly work towards that. But that's for that's for other people to judge. And then more personally, in in a family and in in your circle of friends. Uh, you you want the best for each other, and and so if you can enable that, uh, I just think that creates an additionality in our in our circle, in our community, and and in our society that uh, can only be beneficial. Yeah. So, I think I know the answer to this, but if you were to wind back the clock and get on the start line again, would you be as giving to society now, or would you become more ruthlessly aggressive to earn the buck? I, I don't regret going the way that I have. It has it has costs, uh, and uh, 
but it has enormous benefits. And I think the benefits outweigh the costs. It's a little, uh, it's, it's a, it's a path less traveled if you like. But when I, when I meet people and, and talk to people, they're very interested in, uh, how, how I found this path and also how they might find it as well. And, and, and we see that, uh, and I see it every day. People are more interested than they have been in the past about purpose. They're more interested in how they might give back or how they might contribute in a way that makes them, um, feel good in their, in their self-actualization, their realization, feel good in their community. And, and to also solve and be part of the solving of problems that um, that they're concerned about. And so I see that more often uh, today than maybe I did 20 or 30 years ago, but I, I wouldn't change the path that I, that I chose. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that I did. I'm really oh, glad that I went this way. For the world, I'm glad you did. So is there any mentoring that you're doing to any Andrew, K, Andrew J. Kelly Mark II's? Coming up, are you mentoring any that are going to follow in your footsteps? Uh, there, there are a few people that that I, I talk to regularly that are, are coming along, and one of the questions that I get quite a bit from from young people is how how did you find this path, and how did you reconcile your work in and study in economics and experience in banking to end up where you are, and what I've come up with is that <clears throat> when somebody asks you to do a job or suggests that you might be good in a particular role or to fill in, that might not be on your plan, but you should take the opportunity. Uh, take every opportunity that is offered to you because when somebody says that to you, they're, they're seeing something about you that you don't see in yourself. And if we stay on a particular career track and say, no, I'm just going to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or, or a, a social worker or a scientist, and somebody says, have you ever thought of doing this or would you mind filling in for this role for six months? They're seeing something about you that would benefit them because they're asking you to fill in for a role that's clearly open that they, they know you could do, but you don't know you could do it. And so taking those opportunities that are suggested by other people uh, is usually a really good insight into things you don't know about yourself, but others see as as very positive. You're a wise and generous man, Andrew J. Kelly. So, how do we help? How do, the people that are listening now? How do we help the the Antarctic Science Foundation? If you want to jump on our website at ASF uh, Antarctic Science Foundation That'll be the first time you've probably put AQ into a browser, but that's the domain for Antarctica, AQ. AQ, I had not heard of that. That's brilliant. That's right, yeah. ASF.AQ. Correct. Jump on on the website. You can have a look at some of the projects and people that that are involved in uh, Antarctic Science Foundation and that that our supporters support. So let's be really clear. The Antarctic Science Foundation – only exists because people who are interested in Antarctica, interested in Antarctic science, want to make a difference to our understanding of climate disruption and the types of strategies and mitigation that we need to 
we need to engage with over the next few years to avert extreme weather events. It's those supporters that are supporting researchers uh, through their contribution and their interest that go down to Antarctica, do this work, and then come back with answers. I, I, I often say that Antarctica is the greatest library known to humanity, but we've barely read any of the books. And we oh, only oh, read oh. the books by, by taking researchers to Antarctica, allowing them to do this work, and then come back because Antarctica is a repository of history of the last 50 million years of, of climate data is all packed away in that ice in Antarctica. And it's going to give us the answers that we need to understand how the world's changing, how quickly it's changing, types of things we need to do to mitigate some of that some of that risk. Gee, they're clever people to have you on their team. Good on them. That's terrific. Andrew, thank you for joining us. This has been Andrew J. Kelly. And if you want to help the Antarctic Science Foundation, then you go to asf.aq. That's asf. And thank you to everybody for listening and thank you to the ARA group for being our major sponsor for the fifth year in a row. And I've got to say thank you again to Look Studio Australia because Look Studio Australia, they just have the most skillful people recording for us on this podcast. And I hope when you put your device down later on that you lift your head up, you put your shoulders back and you walk down the street feeling proud to be an everyday Joe or Joanne bag of donuts. And you can listen to Everyday Greatness next week where Barnaby will be talking to co-host of season five of Every Great. That's Scott Gillett's me. <laughs> He's going to be talking to me. <laughs> and he'll be asking me questions about how I try and bring happiness to the people around me, even when things don't seem that bright. And we'll also talk about the importance of family and how that helps to keep you happy. And if you're listening to Andrew J. Kelly, family does keep you happy. And we hope you can join us for that one. And it's going to be one of the great interviews. <laughs> I didn't write this. <laughs> but in the meantime, if you want to find out more about the show, go to our website, everydaygreatness.com.au. That's everydaygreatness.com.au. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening today. Andrew J. Kelly, you are a superstar. Thank you again. This is Scott and Barnaby signing off.